Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynical Podcast recorded here at the China Institute in Manhattan. Let's hear you people make a little noise. I like it. Wow. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's it. We're coming back. Jamie, let's put a dust on for next month. Okay. Uh, the Seneca Podcast is a weekly discussion on current affairs in China, and we're produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day with our free email newsletter curated from 300-plus different news sources and featuring more and more original writing from Jeremy Goldhorn's growing stable of contributors. You can also check out our handy smartphone app, and of course, you can visit our website at SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. Yes. I am Kaiser Guo, and I am delighted to be back in New York and joined by my BFF. That stands for Beardo Fuzzy Face over here. <laughs> Let me see. Uh, of course, Jeremy Goldcorn, Yumi, Editor-in-Chief of Sub China. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing very well indeed, and thank you. I'm delighted to see such a crowd. We were a little worried. I believe there's some kind of holiday here in America today, and uh, celebrating we were worried no one would come. The beginning but. of the genocide. <laughs> yeah. We Americans celebrate very strange holidays. Right? <laughs> you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's still learning our ways, you see. He's an immigrant. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, so the Americans are very inscrutable. You know, we are. After 20 yeah. years in China, I, I find the, uh, it's absolutely impossible to understand the politics and culture of Actually, this country. Oh, yeah. Americans are simpletons for the most part. Some of us are even fucking morons, as it turns out. <laughs> um, anyway, the South China Morning Post has long been Hong Kong's paper of record and has been a regular part of my reading diet now since I began to take any kind of a serious interest in China way back in the 1980s. Uh, like all newspapers... Uh, this is a, an age of, of digital disruption that, that is offering all sorts of challenges. And, you know, like all papers, it's had its ups and downs. But the venerable SCMP has, I think, surprised uh, many of us uh, in the last year or so by really stepping up its game. Uh, it's no longer paywalled. Let's hear a round of applause for that. Oh, that does not imply that SupChina will always be free, though. I mean, let me just make sure that, that we're, we're understanding this very clearly. Uh, it's no longer paywall, but despite its widely reported ownership change and, and the increasing control that Beijing seeks to exert over all sorts of media outlets, the SEMP has become neither a vehicle for the veneration of Chairman Xi or for the veneration of Chairman Ma. So that's been pretty good. The paper has faced interesting challenges in a very polarized Hong Kong where growing tensions between citizens who seek a greater say in their affairs are meeting with an increasingly intolerant uh, business and political elite who run Hong Kong but are loyal to Beijing for the most part. 
So we are delighted to be joined today by Gary Liu, uh, who was appointed CEO of the SCMP in November 2016. Before joining the South China Morning Post, uh, Gary was CEO of DIG, which was a wildly popular service that many of us used uh, back in the day to recommend interesting content on the web. Um, Gary has uh, also been the head of Spotify Labs. He was born in California, spent his childhood in Taiwan and in New Zealand, which I have the rest of my family living in, and it's lovely, and has lived here in the States for most of the last 20 years. Gary Leo, welcome to Seneca. Ooh. Thank you so much for having me. Sounds like I should also come back. Yeah, you will. Right. Well, we'll see if you say that at the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, when you take your next job. I didn't right? say I was going to come back with you. <laughs> Gary, for those of us who haven't worked in a modern media organization, so what's the job description of a CEO? And uh, just as importantly, what don't you touch and, uh, and instead relegate entirely to the editorial leadership? In other words, what's the division of labor between you and the South China Morning Post editor-in-chief, Tammy Tan? I definitely don't want to speak for all modern day media companies because the job of the CEO is very different from one news organization to another. Historically, news organizations have had a very clear Chinese wall between editorial and business and usually have someone running editorial, either called the editor or something else to that effect, and then someone running business, often known as the publisher. And they run their separate sides of the business, both report to the board. That is actually quite rare as a structure now. In the SCMP, I'm the chief executive officer, and the entire company, including editorial, reports into me. That said, I'm very, very fortunate that we have an incredible editor-in-chief and mass head leadership uh, led by Tammy Tam, the editor-in-chief, and they run and own the editorial voice, the newsroom, uh, what the paper publishes, what the online channels publish on a daily basis, uh, and 99.9% .9 of the time, I do not have to involve myself at all. In fact, you don't really want me to be involved. One thing I'm sure we'll get into is the fact that I'm not from a journalism background. And so the reality is my job is to be there to be a an intellectual partner to Tammy, which I haven't earned the right to be yet because she's wicked smart and, uh, and <laughs> something that I will eventually earn my way into. Uh, to be a moral partner to Tammy, especially as a news organization, we have to have very strong convictions. And then third, to be an operational partner to Tammy to make sure that the business is there for the newsroom to be able to continue doing what it does. Gary, you, you say you don't have uh, experience in the media business, really, but I mean, Dig was really essentially a news site, uh, at the very least a news aggregator. Um, did you have any other relevant experience connected to news before taking on this role at the South China Morning Post? Dig, definitely. I spent about two years at dig.com, and it really was a fascinating time to be trying to bridge the gap between the value of high-quality content creation and the value that consumers were willing to pay for it. And our role at Dig, our job, was really to actually create discovery that was quality enough that could actually uh, give you an alternative to other discovery channels, namely Facebook, and in that process, close the gap. Um, and, and through that experience, I got to spend quite a bit of time with not only our venerable news organizations here in the United States, who are all looking for that alternative to social media distribution, but also get to learn from the top bylines, the top journalists all over the world who had a fascination with our business and wanted to work directly with us to get 
their highest version or highest quality journalism to their readers more directly. So that was certainly an enlightening experience. Um, but the reality is, Jeremy, that my entire career has been around media technology. That has been the intersection between media and technology. And even though I was definitely not smart enough to plan it this way, every step of my my career has been uh, learning about how to create, distribute, and monetize content on the internet. So did you have any misgivings um, when you opted to take this job? Uh, I mean, you must have had some appreciation for the sorts of challenges you'd be facing. It hasn't exactly been smooth sailing at the SCMP. In the last decade, then, there have been a lot of changes in the editorial uh, department at the very, very top. Uh, and and then, you know, Xiangwei, uh, Wang Xiangwei was certainly... I mean, I, maybe not deservedly, but he was regarded as a pretty controversial figure. Uh, he was distrusted by some. Um, the former editor, perhaps. Yeah, for, former editor-in-chief. And, and, you know, uh, so just give us a sense of, of what you thought you were getting into. Uh, what was going through your head as you, as you weighed taking this job? For the record, we're five minutes in, so thank you for that soft <laughs> beginning. <laughs> I, w- I went into this job quite eyes wide open. Uh, I, I certainly didn't pull the trigger without without doing a heck of a lot of research and having a lot of conversation with not only the owners of the paper, the previous executive team, the current executive team, and a lot of other folks. I've been very lucky enough in my I've been lucky enough in my life to be surrounded by folks who understand China, who understand the dynamics of China and certainly Hong Kong, who have worked in both journalism and academia and both of those two, uh, well, both sides of the Pacific. And I spent a lot of time in research. Here's what I found. I understood that, yes, we have to acknowledge it, that the South China Morning Post definitely had um, a a history of tumult, or at the very least, a recent history of tumult. And part of it was that over the course of 10 years, the SCMP had about 10 editors. And when you are a news organization with that kind of turnover at the very top of your newsroom, it's hard to establish an identity and a set of convictions about what your purpose is and what your value to the world is. By the way, I believe that we are well over that at this point. During that period of time, at the end of that 10 years, uh, the the, the last editor in that 10-year period that was appointed was Wang Xiangwei. Now, let me say this up front. Being the editor-in-chief of the South China Morning Post, in my opinion, is one of the hardest jobs in the entire news industry. Because reporting on China in an objective way is one of the hardest things to do in news. And Xiang Wei, who I have actually gone to know quite well because he remains an editorial advisor to the newspaper, and I'm thankful that he still remains an editorial advisor to us. Xiang Wei is a conflicting figure for a bunch of different reasons. Um, first of all, I think that you should invite him on the show. Oh yeah, I'd love to. I think, uh, I think he'd be an incredible guest, and, and his depth of knowledge on China is absolutely fascinating. He was the first mainland-born editor of the South China Morning Post, which had a very long history as really a colonial paper in Hong Kong, run by the, uh, the, the, the elite class um, and leading members of Hong Kong society, which were, to be very honest, primarily of British descent. The actual newsroom itself was a lot of old Fleet Street uh, newsmen and women, and they were incredible at what they did, but as China changed, the owners at the point in time, and I certainly wasn't there, so I can't speak to that decision, decided that there was a need for change at the very top of the newsroom. 
And Zhang Wei, I think, just by the nature of who he was, to some degree, was controversial. Now, I will say this. One of the major issues that I encountered, and, and this was part of the diligence process from my point of view before I started in the job, I found that the South China Morning Post uh, was bad at communication, which is fun when you're a media company. It's ironic, but <laughs> we, we have a tendency to be that way. It's because I think as a news company, we never wanted to be the news. We just wanted to report on the news. And also as a Chinese company, culturally, we're very, very bad at owning and telling our own story. And those two things coming together meant that over the course of the period of transition, the SCMP allowed everyone else to own the narrative. And, and when you're not transparent about transformation within a news organization that at that point had 110 years of history, a lot of things, when, when they're opaque, have a tendency to look insidious. And it really, it's, it's so much more innocuous than anyone honestly believes. And so part of the new leadership now, especially with me at the helm, our MO is to be transparent both internally and externally. So what do you think triggered the actual, the onset of this period of tumult 10 years ago? What do you think was the, the point of inflection? I'm sure you've done a lot of sort of analysis of, of what, what happened in, in the run-up to your taking over. Honestly, even with all of my research, my, my, my research, or the, the, the amount of time I spent in diligence was figuring out what the SCMP is today. For the job that I was about to take on, the owners that are new that I was going to work for, the executive leadership that I was gonna participate in. My diligence was about them, was about that. The history I have learned since I have been there, I've spent a lot of time talking to folks who've been in our newsroom for 20, 30 years. I've also talked to plenty of people who were in our newsroom who are still hanging around uh, Hong Kong and have an enorm enormous well of, uh, of experience to share with me. But my experience, to be clear, my diligence was, the, was about the company as it is and what I was taking over. I cannot speak to what started the tumult. I have no idea what the owners were thinking 15 years ago that led to a 10-year period where there was constantly changing leadership at the top of the newsroom. I'm just glad that today, the organization that I get to be a part of is one that has found stability and certainly found a leader in Tammy Tam uh, that I believe over the course of the next few years is going to bring more and more conviction to our reporting. So <clears throat> I'd like to get back to conviction and politics uh, and the difficulties therein a little bit later, but can we uh, also ask about the business challenges? You know, uh, Can we start with the set of challenges presented just by the digital transformation itself, which of course is a challenge that all newspapers uh, that have been print-based or have faced or are facing. Um, does it help you perhaps that you don't have a kind of legacy idea of how a newsroom used to run um, in terms of planning for the future? And what are your plans? You're talking about me specifically versus the South China Morning Post, right? Well, I, both. Let's talk about both. So I have been asked this a lot um, about whether or not the fact that I have not grown up in a traditional newsroom is an advantage or disadvantage for this job. I'm not sure it's that either way. I, I don't know what the owners and the board would say to that if you were to ask them. I still, at some point, need to get a real answer from them about why they took such a big bet on hiring me and whether or not they regret it 10 months in. <laughs> But I think that um, that is actually important. It's, it's important not to be weighed down by legacy of how it's always been done, but it's also important to understand why it used to be done the way it was. Part of it is that in transformation, you can't go into a 114-year-old news organization with 1,100 employees and say, we're in 2017, so this is the new way we're going to do things. You can't do that. 
there is, you, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is institutional knowledge of how journalism, high, how high quality journalism is created. Everything uh, that has led up to this point has created the legacy as well as the credibility and authority of the South China Morning Post. And there's no way I'm gonna throw that out as part of transformation. As well as, of course, the newsroom itself, we have incredible journalists and incredible editors who've been with the company, been in the industry for decades. And our organization would look dramatically different. We would not be as good as we are today without them. So this transformation, the default, is that my expectation is that all of those folks who have been in the company for a long time will be there at the end of the transformation, that they will participate with us, they'll learn new skills, they will tell us the things that we need to keep, the things that we can change and participate. And so knowing how the newsroom ran in the past allows us to figure out how best to be able to change it, to be able to uh, actually incrementally create in the process of transformation. Well, How are you, you going to make money? Wait, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's an easy <laughs> question, is, I mean, too. Come on, don't, don't play into racial stereotypes here, Jeremy. No, uh, I mean, let's, 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 let's get that to that one later. I want to ask you, I mean, well, at least one thing I, I've noticed is one challenge he's certainly risen to and one problem, legacy problem he's addressed is if the SCMP ever suffered from communication difficulties, can I get an amen? I mean, this guy can communicate pretty well, yeah? Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that so, was well, a little weak. Know, yeah, kidding. seriously, come on. <laughs> when I say, can I get an amen, I want to hear it like a... Anyway, uh, so what, what are some of the changes that you have implemented for joining? Jeremy, take notes here, because we want to see how this is done here. <laughs> um, I'm going to give you somewhat of a rehearsed answer, and it's rehearsed because, Jeremy, to your point, it's actually really important for our own organization, our newsroom, to understand how we're going to transform. So I've been spending a lot of my energy communicating. Well, sorry, when you say transform, do you mean make money? Is that- No, I mean, no, 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 I actually, right now, this moment in time, the transformation I'm talking about is to make the South China Morning Post a digital media company because our mission is to lead the global conversation about China. That is actually our mission statement. And for us to be global, we cannot be just a print newspaper because I am not going to go city to city, find contract printers, print a newspaper, and then distribute on trucks anymore. So we have to be digital. So actually the transformation from being print to digital is is a way to get to the end goal, and the goal is to be of global impact. So the transformation I'm talking about is to increase reach and impact of South China Morning Post reporting. So yeah, so what are some of the specific things that you've implemented then? So let's cut this up into three different pillars of change. The first is cultural and identity. The second is process and structure. The third is product and technology. I'll very briefly address each of the three, and then we can dig into them if you want. All right, culture and identity is a big one. It's actually the first thing I started working on when I arrived. As an organization, for us to change in today's media environment, we need to be able to react fast. Honestly, any media company that tells you that they know what consumption behavior is going to look like in five years is either lying to you or they're way too arrogant. They actually don't know. None of us know. The change rhythm, the change cycle in technology today is no longer five years. It's not even one year. Every six months, new consumption behaviors pop up that we as a news organization have to be enlightened about. And so 
Our organization, our company needs to be able to react fast. More than anything else, react fast. So there needs to be a new culture of agility, a new culture of experimentation, uh, no longer a fear of failure, and absolutely there needs to be a better culture of transparency and communication, both internally and externally. Okay, so that's culture and identity. Those are big ones. Yeah. The second, process and structure. To react fast, we actually need to know how our business is doing. And as a traditional news organization, what I found was a company that uh, really was, and this is, by, by the way, just to be clear, I'm probably being unfair to the previous executive leadership uh, because they, they did move the company much faster than when they found it. Uh, but what I found was still a traditional organization that was looking at metrics much more, inf- much, it was too infrequent. And we were too slow on figuring out what was going right, what was going wrong with the business. And so we had to change that process, that cadence of operating. At the same time, from a structure point of view, the newsroom was structured as a newspaper, which meant that the desks reflected the sections of a newspaper, that the actual uh, roster and the cadence of the newsroom reflected a newspaper, which meant that we still had a legacy of people coming in the early afternoon, starting their day, uh, really writing and, and, and working towards this 11.30 off stone time, which is not how the digital media world works. And so we had to restructure for that. I had 300 people in the newsroom focused on how the newspaper next tomorrow morning looked. And the newspaper is a Hong Kong specific product for a much smaller, it is a declining percentage of our overall readership. It is in single digit percentages at this point. And so we had to restructure the newsroom to focus on digital. So that's the second piece. The third one of course is product and technology. I can talk all day about this. Let me simplify it for you. The way that we're thinking about editorial product and technology is that there are two different kinds of platforms. There are discovery platforms and consumption platforms. And every permutation between those two is a different editorial product. Trust me, that increases the complexity. Reporting is already incredibly difficult. Having to think about how your reporting shows up to different people in different contexts across different permutations of platforms exponentially increases the complexity and you can only solve it with technology. And so we're rebuilding from ground up and investing heavily on the engineering side of our business. Okay, now I will not be denied my question. How are you gonna make money? The the quick answer is, Jeremy, I don't know yet. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so so I'm happy to be honest here. One of the advantages of having an owner that today is committed to, to, to investing in news as opposed to generating margin from news is that I care about revenue, but I'm not limited by the bottom line when it comes to what I'm experimenting with and how we are growing, which is really why the South China Morning Post newsroom is actually growing. We're hiring journalists, believe it or not. Wow. Imagine that, 2017, we're hiring journalists. We're hiring them in droves. We're investing heavily on the engineering side. We're going from an engineering team of uh, 20 people focused on consumer facing product to 60 people in a year. On the infrastructure side, there's even more people there. And we are actually testing with all these different channels, thinking about new marketplaces. As a news organization focused on margin, we would not be able to do that. That doesn't mean we forget about revenue. I think the reality is that the news industry is still trying to shake out what long-term sustainable business model looks like. I'm hoping that our participation with the rest of the news industry will make it so that in three to four years, we will have a better idea. And I do think, by the way, that better idea is a mix of revenue channels, advertising plus subscription, 
plus events, plus a couple of other different things that we probably haven't even tried yet or haven't scaled yet. And when we figure out as an industry, hopefully at that point, then my board says, okay, we need to start thinking about margins. So hopefully I earn a few years. You got right. yes. Jeremy, you see, the reason why you didn't need to ask nice. that question is because their parent company has a market cap north of $400 billion. Yes, <laughs> that, 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 that always so, helps. But I mean, the question I have for you is, uh, what, how, how, how has this landed on, on your, your uh, on the ears of your newsroom, and how have they responded to, you know, coming in early now and, and writing a lot of frequent posts and, and not, you know, gearing it around to the offstone at 1130? I mean, how, how, how has have your, the, the new changes you've implemented uh, been received by your staff? Quite positively, actually. See, one of the advantages of, of transforming a newspaper that was for lack of actually, let me, yeah, let me just be honest. I mean, we were we had our first uh, non-profitable year in 2016, and we were watching as the global news industry was collapsing under its own weight, under changing economics, declining circulation of the paper product all over the world, including in Hong Kong, and there was no one in the in the news organization at the South China Morning Post that didn't know this was happening. Right. So when you tell people that are backed into a corner, hey, we need to transform, most of them don't put up fisticuffs and fight you on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so everyone, the question is not why do we need to transform, it is how, and more importantly, what does this transformation mean for me as an individual? I mean, at the end of the day, all of us care, and we, we have a right to care about our job, about our livelihood, about taking care of our family, about the passion of the, the industry that we have decided to, to enter into. And so to my point about communication, we have spent a lot of time leading people through the process of what transformation should look like. There are some pains, but there's plenty of things to celebrate at the end of it. So it's been actually very positive. Our newsroom journalists, editors have reacted well they they've they've started changing their daily rhythm they've started enjoying actually writing for digital platforms because here's the thing digital gives us an incredible storytelling canvas one that journalists have never had before until now the fact that you can tell a compelling story not just in words but with pictures and videos and, I don't know, GIFs maybe sometimes, and infographics and all these things. Real journalists who care about telling compelling stories, for them, this is the golden age. This canvas is incredible, and if we give them the opportunity to do that, most of them have taken to it and yeah, have run you, with you it. guys have done some really, really interesting stuff. I mean, I, I one thing that sticks out for me was uh, during the Belt and Road uh, uh, forum in, in Beijing, BARF, uh, the... the there was this t terrific infographic that you guys did, you know, laying out uh, the, the details of five or six major uh, Belt and Road Initiative projects. That I think we, we, we talked about that on our show, right, Jeremy? Yeah. So I guess, uh, the, the, uh, speaking of Beijing, I think one of the questions that everyone must be thinking about is how are you responding when, when those pressures come from Beijing uh, to, to, to censor content? I mean, uh, from where I sit, it looks like you guys have done a pretty admirable job. I mean, you're, you can't. I, I wouldn't uh, call you out too badly on this. I mean, you you covered the Tiananmen commemorations on, on, on June fourth. You covered uh, Liu Xiaobo's death. Uh, you've 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 done I think qu quite a bit of, of pretty hard hitting stuff that I, let's frankly Beijing probably wasn't entirely happy with, right? Uh, it's it's probably fair to say that there you know you, you talk about Guo and Gui as well. Uh, uh, 
maybe you yeah, have... we get under their skin if that's what you're getting yeah, at. Yeah, at yeah, yeah, I'm getting at that, right. But, you know, I'd also note that you guys have published a clutch of articles that, you know, cause the SCMP's critics to whoop at the, the paper's apparent submission to the Communist Party line as well. But, um, you know, you, you come under any, do you come under any direct pressure or is it indirect? Um, how does it come to you when it comes? I think it's, first of all, it's important to remember that the South China Morning Post is 100% blocked in China and we do not publish news in Chinese. Wait, it's not blocked in China right now. I checked this today. No, it's, I mean, we get a, I get a report every single day about what percentage of the site and it's 97, 98%. Okay, so fine, I lied a little bit here. Okay. Um, I think sometimes... The Belt and Road Forum infographic was not blocked. Maybe, yeah. And and our, uh, whatever, the Hangzhou 20, uh, G20 site may not be blocked. But right. in general, our journalism is not accessible in China and we by the way, I have no intent of changing that. So when, when we're talking about China, Beijing cares most about what their citizens read and watch and listen to, how they get their information. And being a Hong Kong-based news organization allows us the space, and especially a Hong Kong-based news organization that publishes in English and with a very clear goal to actually elevate the understanding of China around the world. So we're reporting out towards the rest of the world from China. Even if we report on things that Beijing within mainland China would never allow propaganda outlets, their mouthpieces, to, to talk about, even when we publish it, and I'm sure they're not happy that we do it and, and we share with the rest of the world those aspects of China, they let us do it. For now. Um, I, I, I used you. to say the same thing about my old website. Uh, it was called downway.org. And I used to say, well, I'm translating news about China into English. And in Where fact, were you, you doing, doing it, Jeremy? In Beijing. Okay, so that's the difference. Um, well, it is, but Hong Kong is getting a lot closer to Beijing. I mean, I guess my question is, like, what will you do when you get the call, either from somebody at Alibaba or from the government that says, you know, this thing you want to run is an existential threat to the paper. Uh, is there like a, a plan for that? There is no contingency plan today for that existential moment. And our editorial team, what they're preparing for, at the very least, what they're working on, is making sure our convictions are strong enough that, that we communicate them well enough, that we train our journalists enough, that we approach the line and we know how to tell the compelling story of China's rise comprehensively and objectively without putting ourselves in those positions where we can run into existential issues. The commitment from our owners, and they've been extremely public about it, and they've been private about it with me over and over again, is that their intent is absolutely to protect the editorial independence and integrity of the South China Morning Post newsroom. Listen, Jack and Joe and the Alibaba leadership they're incredibly intelligent human beings. They do not want their legacy to be, that they messed up this 114-year-old bastion of freedom of press in Hong Kong. And my commitment as CEO, Tammy Tam's commitment as editor-in-chief is also to protect that editorial independence and integrity. And so there are layers of control and discernment here that our hope is we will be able to maintain exactly that. And yet, you, you must remember when, when 
Alibaba's takeover was first announced and was first being talked about, you, you, you can't really have it both ways. I mean, on the one hand, Alibaba was saying that they want to absolutely preserve your editorial integrity and independence. But on the other, they were, uh, Joe, Joe Tsai actually wrote about this in, in an op-ed in your paper, saying that they want to tell the China story differently. I mean, that, that has a particular meaning. That, that means they, they believe uh, extant Western media, English, English language media coverage of China to be biased. So they have an editorial slant, or do they, or, do they or, or not? I mean, you can't really have it both ways, can you? So I don't believe that it's mutually exclusive. The board is able to make changes at executive leadership. They can make changes in the CEO office. They can make changes for the editor-in-chief's role when they want. And as owners, you have every right. Every single news organization owner chooses the editor-in-chief. And so editorial, editorial independence or maintaining editorial independence and integrity, what that really means is once that editor-in-chief is chosen, you leave them alone and you let them operate. The reality is that that choice of editor-in-chief is in a lot of ways a reflection of the owner's own position or at the very least their view of the world. Now, most of the people here in this room probably do not know Tammy Tam. I can tell you that if you got an opportunity to know Tammy Tam and actually know all of our senior leaders, who by the way, we have a senior editorial ship, that's not the word, our, our senior editorship is seven different people holding seven different passports. I'm extremely proud of the diversity of the South China Morning Post newsroom. It's something that I don't think any other major newspaper in the world can claim, that there's that kind of diversity of thought, that diversity of background at, at the, the, the highest levels. And they challenge each other every day, by the way. If you got to know Tammy, I can tell you this, you will find her knowledge and understanding of China incredibly deep, and certainly of Hong Kong as well, her understanding of the nuance of the relationship between China and the rest of the world, incredibly deep. Her desire and conviction of being able to tell an objective truth about China to also be incredibly deep. And she was working for the paper for a long time before she... She was working for the paper for a few years. Her background is actually in broadcast journalism. She was one of the most well-known and well-respected broadcast journalists in Hong Kong for years before that. So I do think that... That those, I, I don't think those two things that, that ownership said at, at the point of acquisition, by the way, I wasn't there. Right. And um, to be honest, I think that... You might have advised them differently. Well, my language <laughs> has been different. And we should talk about the Western Press thing in a second. Uh, but I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I think owners have every right to say, here's our worldview. And, uh, and, and our news organization, or at the very least, the editor-in-chief is chosen... Gener I mean, how many newspaper owners, whether it's Murdoch or even the Salzburgers or whomever else in this world will choose an editor-in-chief that uh, is, is, believes in the in opposite worldview from them as an owner. I don't think we can really find an example of that. And sure. I don't even particularly think that just finding an example of that means that we can point to that news organization and say, oh, that equals editorial independence. Fair enough. All right. I've um, grilled you on money and politics. Um, let's sw switch gears a little bit. How, what is it like working with Joe Tsai and, and Jack Ma? Are they very hands-on? I, I don't want to pretend at all that I know Jack Ma. Uh, mostly because too little many... Guy. Looks like E.T. <laughs> too many Chinese people would come find me and ask me for introductions that I cannot make. Uh, I spent a little bit of time with Jack, and what I do know is that 
I mean, he's both Jack and Joe are incredibly intelligent human beings. Um, I spend most of my time with with Joe Tsai because he's the chairman of the South China Morning Post board. Um, Now, our actual governance structure is very unique within Alibaba. We are a wholly owned subsidiary that because Alibaba has made a commitment to South China Morning Post operating independently, even though it is wholly owned, I actually report to a board and not directly into any individual or any division of South China Morning Post. I don't actually think there's any other one of uh, Alibaba's uh, acquisitions that, that looks like that. So my board has Alibaba members on it, including Joe, as well as uh, seats for independent directors, one of which is our previous CEO, actually my predecessor, Robin Hu, who's from Singapore. And so I have the privilege of actually working with an incredible news men and women uh, who have come through our past as editorial advisors as well as who are on our board. So um, our interaction with Joe is, my interaction with Joe is mostly about how to build through transformation. We talk a lot about the uh, culture and identity change. We talk a lot about product and uh, technology because he really is an incredible product person. And we do actually talk a lot intellectually about what is going on with China and China's relationship with the rest of the world. Because just by being vice chairman of Alibaba Group uh, and, and working across the Pacific all the time and, and actually watching as Alibaba Group grows all around the world, Joe has an, a, a very astute and nuanced understanding of how China relates to the global economy. And those are frankly for me, just enlightening conversations where I get to learn um, as, as much as actually tell from my own experience. Alibaba, of course, is a colossus in uh, technology and you know, in cloud computing, in AI increasingly, uh, in big data. I'm sure that they've been able to, to uh, give you tremendous assistance in that uh, this softball question. <laughs> so tell us, tell us how they've been able to, to uh, lend their strengths to your organization. What are some of the concrete ways in which that's, that's played out? The most concrete way is money. They've given us a bunch of money. <laughs> I'm being very I like honest. I, it, it's, uh, it's incredibly important for us to grow the newsroom, again, to invest the way we're, we're investing. And so, uh, honestly, that is the primary advantage of being owned by Alibaba. We are, even if we are the world's most profitable news organization, we're not going to show up on their balance sheet. And for now, that means that, uh, that, that the board is very generous with investment. The other way, which is actually also a form of money, is that uh, when it comes to cloud computing, um, we have been able to transition a lot of our backend services onto AliCloud. This in no way, shape, or form is an advertisement for AliCloud, I promise you that. <laughs> uh, but it, it means that it's much cheaper for us. Infrastructure costs for cloud computing are still a massive part of your expenditure as a technology company, especially as you scale. Being able to go onto AliCloud, which was, is cheaper for us than Amazon, uh, makes our operating costs much lower. Besides that, there really there, there aren't a lot of actually very tactical relationships we have or direct relationships we have with Alibaba's operating units. In fact, even on the editorial side, uh, there have been moments where Jack has made some major announcement and we find out because the Wall Street Journal reported it. And we will reach out to Ali and be like, hey, well, how about a heads up next time? And the response we get from the PR team is, earn that right. Okay, the Wall Street Journal is more important for us right now in telling our story to the Western world 
So earn that right. You want that access, earn that right. And of course, that doesn't make me feel great. And certainly our correspondents and our editors are kind of like moping in the corner. But the, the reality is that, you know what? That is good. That keeps that that makes that is actually a sign of that independence. Is oh, that I, I take that tough love that comes with lots of money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll actually talk, take a lot when it comes with that much money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yes, anyway, that's that's my answer. Long winded answer to that, that question. That kind of leads me on to the next question, in the sense that you know, if Ali, Alibaba's PR folk are saying to you, you know, get more important and influential, um, I mean, that is a big challenge for a Hong Kong newspaper, you're trying to cover China for a global audience. Um, how, how is that going to work? Um, because that is a new mission, right, for, for the South China Morning Post. Um, so are you going to operate a lot of bureaus in other countries as well? Uh, and, you know, as someone who's been trying to interest English language news consumers uh, about China for more than two decades, I feel the pain of, the, of this question. I mean, how do you plan to grow the world's interest in news from China? Jeremy, the answer is timing. Two decades ago, you were too early. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Well, we're, riding, we're, we're riding that podcasting wave. I'm though. always yeah, yeah. too early or too late. <laughs> so <laughs> you're 100% right. Actually, maintaining our importance, or at the very least, maintaining our root and status as Hong Kong's newspaper of record and reporting on China for the rest of the world is not an easy thing to do, mostly from, actually almost completely from a resourcing standpoint. Hong Kong is a very, very complicated uh, place. And it's getting increasingly comp more and more complicated. And so reporting on Hong Kong requires a lot of resources. And of course, telling the story of China, 1.3 billion people to the rest of the world, this rising economy that is nothing like any of us ever seen in human history is even more complicated and requires even more resources. So even though we have the advantages of being in investment mode, we will never have enough people. We have to figure out how to serve the Hong Kong people and the world at the same time. I refuse to give up on serving the Hong Kong people because if we lose our root in Hong Kong, we will not be able to view China with the objectivity that is required and accountable for us. And so what we are actually focusing on right now when it comes to, uh, to, to balancing those two things is establishing very real expertise on reporting on China across multiple different verticals that can also assist on, on, on telling the story of Hong Kong as it relates to China. You cannot tell Hong Kong's story today without talking about China. And I do think that we still probably tell the Hong Kong story more independently on China of China than we actually should. And I think that if we're able to reorganize our desks, our disciplines, hire in the right editors, and train our new staff uh, in new ways, we will be able to balance those two things better. Well, you are, as you say, the Hong Kong paper of record, but you're also viewed, at least in some quarters, as a paper belonging to the old Hong Kong establishment, as I said. And, you know, at least from, from where I sit, uh, from the news as reported in, in the West, and like you said, we'll, we'll talk about that a bit, uh, it looks like Hong Kong's experienced a few years of some you know, serious tumult. We ha you have, you know, youthful uprisings. You have uh, a lot of people, you know, who are suffering from serious economic dislocations, uh, a generation that isn't uh, going to live better than its parents. And, uh, you know, your localism, you the umbrella revolution of a few years ago. Uh, how are you positioning yourself when you're trying to serve that all-important Hong Kong uh, readership? As, <clears throat> let me try that so again. So he's nervous. Uh, so I, I'm yeah, sorry, back no, to the hot seat. <laughs> 
It's uh, we were just talking about third puberty outside. <clears throat> He's been talking a lot today. Give him, give him the way that we address it is as an objective news organization, and so our role is to report all of it as objectively as we can. I would suggest that if you if you want to understand the South China Morning Post, go back to 2014 archives and read our coverage of the Occupy movement, the, the Umbrella movement. And I do believe that the South China Morning Post, better than anyone else, as we should, because we're Hong Kong's paper of record, covered it with breadth and depth, with true objectivity. We cover both sides of the argument, and we continue to do that today. With Joshua Wong and the, the student leaders who are now in jail, we covered that event over the course of the last couple of months. Also, very comprehensively, both sides of the argument, people who believe that the judiciary overstepped their bounds, as well as people who believe that the judiciary did exactly what it was designed to do. In fact, quite recently, we published a great commentary um, by one of Joshua's very, very close friends, Jason Ng, who went to visit Joshua in jail. And Jason is a, is a contributor that we, we actually love working with because he tells us in a very, very human way, but also uh, with, with a, he's both a, 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 well, actually, I don't want to speak for him, but at least from our point of view, from a human and academic point of view of explaining why the pan-democratic movement um, exists and what the issues are that these student leaders really want to address in Hong Kong. We do not shy away from those things. We have called out the Hong Kong government over and over again on the fact that housing is a massive issue, education is a massive issue, the lack of mobility in a lot of ways, and I think most people in Hong Kong would identify the lack of mobility as one of the, uh, the, the lightning poles of this social uprising that's happening in Hong Kong. Absolutely. Certainly yeah. political reform becomes a part of it very quickly. And so our role is to report on all of this with objectivity. I think we've done a pretty good job. Gary, um, I noticed from the bylines um, that there seems to be a pretty good mix now of Hong Kongers and Chinese people, mainland Chinese, you know, based on, on the way they write their names. Is there a, a clash of cultures at all in the newsroom like you're seeing at some of the university campuses in, in Hong Kong? I do not believe so. Now... It could be that no one has let me know about it yet, uh, but from all of my time in the newsroom and getting to meet these folks and, and exchanging ideas over and over again, I haven't seen it. I haven't heard it. We are, yes, we're 1,100 people, but we're small enough that these things would absolutely rise to the top. There is increasing transparency in the newsroom. We love different kinds of ideas and people are constantly engaging one another and like I said, even at the senior levels, challenging one another's expectations. We have our Chinese journalists and reporters in Hong Kong. A lot of them are based in Hong Kong and sit side by side with our Hong Kong Chinese staff. We also are rotating our Hong Kong Chinese staff into mainland China. Uh, and with their, uh, their home return permits, they're able to go in and spend time in our bureaus across China. And so there really is a continuous exchange of ideas. I think it makes us better. Gary, you're a creature of, of technology uh, from the technology world. Let's, let's change subject here a little bit. And I mean, right across the border from Hong Kong is, of course, Shenzhen, which has in, in the last decade or so, emerged as one of the great centers of technological innovation in the world. Of course, it sits right on top of the supply chain. People are able to, to, you know, to iterate very, very quickly, to prototype very quickly, to roll out products super, super quickly. What's happening in Hong Kong? I mean, why, you know, there have been these, these different initiatives, the cyber port and things like that, to try to stimulate innovation in Hong Kong. What's, 
What's keeping it back? Is it simply the size of the market? Is it what the what is it? This, this is the one I'm really going to get in trouble for. No, go for it. Man. Because uh, <laughs> we, we like th- that. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're safe. Well, I got you. I got you. Man. I got you back. Because I, I really am still an outsider to Hong Kong. Um, I, I really do hope that at some point my wife and I earn status as insiders, as some somebody who really understands Hong Kong, um, is able to engage deeply with Hong Kong. We've already come in 10 months to love Hong Kong. But as an outsider, and especially as a technologist, I am frustrated by what I see in Hong Kong when it comes to technology and startup development. Because... This city has all of the ingredients you need and has had all of the ingredients you need over the last 20 years to develop one of the world's great innovation ecosystems, and I don't see it today. It has the education, so access to human capital. It has the infrastructure, the, the power grid does not go down, and it has one of the fastest uh, consumer internet, or uh, average consumer internet speeds in the world. It has access to capital, it has the independent judiciary that protects IP, as all of these things, and it's an incredibly international city that is fluent in both Chinese and English. Imagine being able to build for those two marketplaces from a city that uh, not only do you get the, 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 the beauty of a, a true metropolis, a global metropolis, but you can walk out your door and go hiking within 15 minutes, you have the beach right there. Like, it is a marvelous city, why? Have people not moved there to build startups? So what's okay, your I get it. It's the Hong Kong Tourism Board is going to make South China Morning Post profitable. Boy, uh, <laughs> we have asked the Hong Kong Tourism Board for a lot of money, and I don't think that's the case right now. So I, I think that here's what I have seen. I have seen that a lot of these underlying issues, uh, education and housing, have have actually made it so that young people are unwilling or unable to take risks. And as entrepreneurs, you need to take risks. Most of the stuff that we do as tech entrepreneurs are terrible ideas, but you learn <laughs> from those failures, you get better and better. And actually, if you talk about the Silicon Valley ecosystem, the good meetups, the good insider circles that actually create these incredible uh, Leaders and new products actually change the world are usually the ones where they are constantly sharing their F-ups. Yep, 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 yep. And, uh, and that's something that that kind of failure and that The stigmatization of failure. Yes, to yeah, share yeah, those yeah. failures doesn't really exist. And, and the education system doesn't breed that or at the very least teach that uh, throughout the entire education system from grade school all the way through university. Um, and capital doesn't incentivize those kinds of risk-taking. So I think that those are, are, are major issues. We did say we would talk a little bit about uh, your your ideas about the Western media coverage of China, the quote unquote Western media coverage. Uh, I have, you know, I've certain something that Jeremy talk about and I talk about frequently. Uh, but I'd love to hear your take on things. What, what do you think is is are, are the primary issues, and how do you think the SEMP uh, can meaningfully address those those uh, problems, those shortcomings? So again, this is a massively oversimplified version of reality, but it makes the conversation easier to have. So excuse me. Yeah, for we this. only have five more minutes, so you got it. You got it. <laughs> I see the the media world that covers China as a dichotomy right now. You have on one side the perspective of Beijing, and we all know where that comes from and what the purpose of it is. That is propaganda coming from the state-owned mouthpieces, and on the other side often very far on the other side, is the perspective of our Western media organizations, certainly the ones that I grew up with, the ones that I still love dearly today. 
And it is a perspective. I personally believe that part of the reason why there's a perspective, it's not because, I, I actually don't know because I don't work in those organizations. I'm sure some people will claim that it's pure ideology. But I do think economics has a huge part to play in this. We have watched as foreign bureaus get cut in size, down to skeleton crews and less and less foreign correspondents working in the regions of the world that actually need more journalists. And when you have only a couple of people working within China to cover this enormity of a country, how can you possibly cover it comprehensively? You can't. And so you pick a couple of big storylines, and then it leads to the ide ideology question of what the narrative is about China that your readers are expecting to some degree, and also your editors believe in, uh, and all the, the, those things conflated leads to this uh, very uh, specific perspective. It is not wrong, it is just a perspective. No, I, you, I absolutely agree with you. I think that it's a, it's a problem of the volume of coverage. Uh, you know, if I pick up the New York Times and read stories about the United States, and I, I see, uh, you know, horrific reporting about uh, uh, racial strife in America, I know that that doesn't define the United States, right? There, there are going to be, you know, four or five very, very hard-hitting negative stories about this country that I live in, but I have the context. I grew up here. I read the rest of the paper, and it, it, it sort of gives me a, a more sort of balanced take. This is missing in China when you only have four stories about China in the Post or the Times in a given day. Right. There's a selective, right. So I agree. And so this is where you guys come in, right? You guys can offer copious coverage. You can cover in, in, in depth, right? That is our hope. We have one of the largest news operations of any foreign or outside media in, in, in mainland China. Right now, our bureaus in China altogether stand at about 40 people, and we have, and we, we have commitment to investing to grow that, uh, those, those bureaus all across China. When it comes to coverage, our Hong Kong and China coverage altogether, instead of four articles per day, uh, or 20-some articles per week, we publish now around 900 to 1,000 articles about Hong Kong and China on a weekly basis. So our coverage is wide, it is deep, and it's going to get wider and deeper, and hopefully it's going to get better, and that is the intent. Gary, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here. Uh, we will take some questions in just a bit, but it's, uh, it's time for recommendations first. Uh, before we get to recommendations, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Uh, check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChina News. And if you like the Seneca Podcast, by all means, leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes Store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really helps us and it means a lot more importantly. Uh, now, Jeremy, recommendations. Why don't you kick us off? Okay, we'll just quickly. Um, I mean, I'm somebody who's been reading the, uh, used to be the front page and now it's the home page of the People's Daily and Xinhua News Agency for <clears throat> many, many years, uh, which Poor is thing. probably part of the problem inside my brain. Um, and I, I still think that they're very important, but there's a great app uh, from the NDRC, the National Development and Reform Commission, the Fagaiwai. They have a WeChat app that has a few headlines every day. And it's actually a really great way to get the, like real news about China because the NDRC doesn't really, you know, spit out propaganda, you right. know, like Xinhua and People's Daily. Every second day, there's a story about how wonderful Xi Jinping is or, you know, a very long, boring story about military reform. Or Whereas the NDRC pretty much 
you know, it tells you, okay, drug prices are going to go somewhere. We're going to introduce some new rules. This is going to happen in the economy. So aside from the South China Morning Post and China, another great news source, NDRC WeChat. That's a good one. Very good. All right, Gary, you're up. What do you have for us? This might be a little bit cliche for China watchers. There are two books I'm spending a bunch of time with right now because they're so relevant in this moment in time. The first is Richard McGregor's first book from 2010, The Party. Yeah. Because really with the Party Congress coming up on October 18th, and especially this one, it's fascinating to understand how the party operates. Um, and, and certainly from Richard's point of view, he's very, very academic in the way that he researched this book. It is fascinating to understand how the party wants the world to see it, or actually not see it, how it manages manages to uh, stay a single-party state and, and how it manages to affect uh, everyone's life in, in China. So that's a fascinating book. The second one, a little bit controversial over the course of the last few months, um, Harvard politics professor, political science professor Graham Allison wrote Destined for War. Uh, which is about Thucydides' trap and how he believes that there's a possibility that China and the U.S. ends up in war. At the very least, history tells us that we have a potential of it, but he also does offer uh, a, a pathway towards peace. Um, and it really is, for, if for nothing else, the start of that book paints an incredible picture of what the rise of China actually looks like. I think we can all say that it is big and it is important and it is going to change the world, uh, but he quantifies it in ways that I haven't seen before. So that clarity is fascinating. Excellent. I have not actually read Graham Allison's book yet, but uh, Jeremy uh, commissioned a scathing take I, I, No, on. I didn't commission. It was submitted. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. submitted, right. Mm -hmm. Which I, I, but it was I yeah, a scathing to. take he, on that he, book. Yeah, yeah, after even like you know most of the ad hominem attack that was contained in it was removed, it was still really kind of full of vitriol. Anyway, well, uh, I, I, I am that, from the English that. newspaper tradition right. where we think Our it's a trolls, good idea to right. be, be a troll. Yeah, yeah trollish so. assholes. <clears throat> right. Anyway, uh, my recommendation is also China related. This is actually a, a rare three China recommendations. Uh, usually, one of us is is doing like some obscure band or something. That's you. Who would that be? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I, I have a new paper that's been uh, published by Merix, the Mercator Institute on China Studies. It's called Ideas and Ideologies Competing for China's Political Future, How Online Pluralism Challenges Official Orthodoxy. Uh, it's by Kirsten Schirkupfer, um, Marika Olberg, Simon Lang, and Bertram Lang. Uh, it looks at uh, debates in Chinese social media, and it uses all sorts of survey data on Chinese netizens. Um, you can sort of think of it as having built on uh, a paper that we talked about on our podcast before about uh, ideology that was done by Jennifer Pan and Yi Ching Xu. Uh, that was in uh, the spring of 2015. We'll put a link to that old podcast up because it's really worth looking at. Uh, what this Merrick's paper does is it identifies really interesting clusters of people. Uh, it, it sort of groups different types of netizens, and, and they range from sort of in the sort of upper left-hand corner, the, the, who are, are sort of pro-laissez-faire and uh, embrace universal values, the sort of U.S. lovers, the humanists, uh, the the, uh, the democratizers, and then in another, another corner, China advocates, Mao lovers, traditionalists, and then everything in between, including a very interesting corner of uh, equality advocates, who I would equate with sort of the so-called new left embodied by uh, uh, just a, a small but quite influential group of academic thinkers. Anyway, we may end up doing, I think, an episode about that paper if we can get a hold of the right people when we go to Europe next spring. Uh, let me hear a very warm round of applause for Gary Liu. I think he's just... <laughs> Gary, 
fantastic. And and it's not paywalled, I mean, which is just fantastic. I, mean, I can't take you off for that. No, thank yeah, you, Alibaba. Thank Alibaba. Right, right, right. We were, we were, it, was, it was a really horrible paywall because I was, actually was, was a subscriber and it used to kick me off all the time anyway. It was actually hard to circulate. History, Usually yeah. you can use the Google trick and get around, but no, that one, no, 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 no. Anyway, hey, thanks all for coming, uh, and we'll take a, little, a few questions in a bit. But the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn. Special thanks today to James Heimowitz and to Dinda Elliott from the China Institute for helping us. Yeah, hey. Hassan. <laughs> And uh, drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. And follow us on Twitter at, at SubChina News. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.